Lung health updates for primary care providers, Conversations with NHLBI is a series of CME podcast episodes produced by PrimeMed in partnership with Learn More, Breathe Better, a program of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute of the National Institutes of Health. In this episode, looking at patient case studies, we are joined by Dr. Mihaela Stepan, a program officer with NHLBI's Division of Lung Diseases, and Dr. Elizabeth Olsner, General Internist and Irving Associate Professor of Medicine at Columbia University Department of Medicine in the Division of General Medicine. We'll be discussing profiles of three patients with reduced lung function, including an asymptomatic smoker, a smoker with respiratory symptoms but without spirometric evidence of COPD, and a COPD patient with a history suggestive of alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. So let's begin. Uh, our first case involves a patient who is 57 years old. She's female. She's new to the area and wants to establish a new relationship with a primary care provider. She smoked one pack of cigarettes a day for 18 years and has decreased her use to one pack every other day over the past six months. She works from home and lives alone. Her medical history indicates that she had a hip fracture last year, at which point she was told she had osteoporosis. Aside from this, she has no other medical problems. She has had no emergency room visits, took a few days off in the spring when she had a cold. She takes calcium and vitamin D and a bisphosphonate. The patient does not report shortness of breath, but she does not exercise much, especially after the hip fracture. Her physical exam in this visit notes no shortness of breath and bilateral clear to auscultation on examination of the lungs. So, uh, Dr. Stefan, should we be screening this patient for COPD? So first, uh, let me thank you for inviting me to this podcast. And the short answer for this patient is it depends and we need more information. So I want to remind you all that in May 2022, US Preventive Services Task Force published their report, which recommends against screening spirometry for COPD in asymptomatic adults. The reason for this recommendation is that there are no data to indicate that population-based screening spirometry is effective in directing management decisions or in improving COPD outcomes in patients identified before the development of significant symptoms. I want to emphasize that this recommendation is for asymptomatic adults and is about population-based screening spirometry. Further, this recommendation does not apply to persons who present to clinicians with symptoms such as chronic cough, sputum production, difficulty breathing, or wheezing. Also, it does not apply to populations at very high risk for COPD, such as persons with alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, and we'll discuss a case of this later, or workers with known occupational exposures. In addition, the 2022 Global Initiative for COPD report adds to the above recommendation aggressive case finding by screening for symptoms that patients may not themselves perceive and subsequent spirometry if symptoms are positive. So what about our patient? We should ask additional questions about possible unrecognized symptoms. Of note, she may not perceive shortness of breath due to limited physical activity, and her lack of exercise may be a sign of mild obstruction, and lung function testing may be informative if she has some symptoms. The fact that she reduced smoking may underscore symptoms she wanted to avoid. 
and also we should consider the interaction between smoking and osteoporosis and to work with her to stop smoking. I want to acknowledge the challenges associated with efficiently identifying people with undiagnosed COPD in primary, in primary care settings. As we know, there is a communication gap between healthcare providers and patients who do not always report their symptoms because they don't think of, they think they will go away over time, or they had these problems for years. It is our responsibility to consider the individual patient for unrecognized symptoms and therefore unrecognized illnesses, as making a diagnosis earlier can allow institution of care, including smoking cessation, vaccination, bronchodilators if needed, and comorbidity management. I love that uh, discussion, Darstavan. Thank you very much. Uh, the, the distinction between screening tests versus a diagnostic test, um, it's, it's as if uh, an analogy could be uh, when a patient comes to you uh, with persistent rectal bleeding and you're not offering a screening colonoscopy at that point, you're offering a diagnostic colonoscopy because they're symptomatic. So similar here, uh, patients who have uh, symptoms, persistent cough or dyspnea, um, exercise intolerance, uh, really um, uh, frequent and severe respiratory infections, um, you know, dig a little bit deeper for all those good reasons you mentioned, you can really improve um, their uh, prognosis uh, based on doing a little bit of extra work. Um, so excellent points. Thank you. Uh, next case, we're going to turn now to a male who's 62 years old. He complains of productive cough most mornings and dyspnea when exercising. For the past three years, this patient had one to two episodes of a cold and was treated with antibiotics by his primary care provider and had one admission to the hospital for pneumonia. He quit smoking last year after the pneumonia hospitalization and has at least 40 pack years of smoking prior to quitting. The patient has no history of asthma or allergies, no medical conditions, and is not taking any medications. Physical exam at this visit shows no shortness of breath at rest, bilateral clear auscultation on his lung exam, and his normal O2 saturation. His body mass index is 33. One week after this visit, he took a spirometry test in the office, and the results show an FEV1 to FVC ratio of 74%, um, but an FEV1 of uh, 1.79 liters, which is 49% of predicted. He also had a CT scan of his chest, which shows no interstitial lung disease. So here we have a, a little bit more complicated case. Uh, Dr. Olsner, do you want to uh, address this one? How do we diagnose this patient, and how should we manage him? Thank you. I think this is such a great case to follow the first case because this is the kind of patient in which you should perform spirometry because it sounds like they might have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or COPD. But in fact, when you did the spirometry for this patient, they didn't have COPD because their ratio was preserved. Nonetheless, the FEV1 was much lower than expected. It was impaired. So what do we call this pattern of spirometry? We can call it preserved ratio impaired spirometry or PRISM. The specific definition is having an FEV1 to FEC ratio of greater than or equal to 0.7 and an FEV1 of less than 80% predicted. Now, the PRISM pattern of spirometry is relatively common in the general population. It's seen in about 8% of adults and can actually be more prevalent in historically marginalized groups and underserved populations. Um, we 
observe that it also can be an unstable pattern. So individuals who have prism on spirometry may actually turn out to have obstruction on spirometry five years later. In follow-up studies, they've seen that actually up to a half of adults who had PRISM at one point transitioned to having airflow obstruction later on. And interestingly, up to 20% or one in five revert to having normal spirometry. So what does this mean? What do we do when we see a PRISM pattern on a patient's spirometry? Well, we should be concerned. We should pay attention because the evidence suggests that adults with PRISM can have adverse health outcomes. So in terms of respiratory outcomes, having a PRISM pattern has been associated with increased respiratory symptoms, increased hospitalizations for respiratory causes, and increased respiratory-related deaths. There are slightly weaker associations between PRISM and these respiratory outcomes than between airflow obstruction and these respiratory outcomes. But still, compared to normal spirometry, PRISM is higher risk for adverse respiratory outcomes. And it's quite a bit higher risk for adverse cardiovascular outcomes and worsened all-cause mortality. And here, PRISM shows stronger associations with cardiovascular and all-cause mortality outcomes than airflow obstruction itself. So PRISM certainly merits our attention, our concern, and our vigilance. And yet, it's really important to note there actually are no clear diagnostic or management guidelines yet for PRISM, despite it being common and associated with adverse prognoses. So, So what can we recommend? First of all, it's really important to take a step back and say, why does this person have a PRISM pattern on spirometry? And one possible reason might be an underlying restrictive lung disease. So to evaluate that, it's worth getting full pulmonary function testing to see if the total lung capacity is less than 70% predicted. If that's the case, this person warrants a workup for possible restrictive lung diseases, such as interstitial lung disease, neuromuscular disease, or chest wall issues. So you should follow those algorithms if you do identify on full PFTs evidence of a restrictive lung disease. That being said, the majority of patients with a prison pattern spirometry will have a TLC that is relatively normal. They will not have evidence of restrictive lung disease. And that's probably the case in this patient who already had lung imaging that did not show any interstitial lung abnormalities. So what do we do here? This is really challenging. Um, We have so far a lot of work still to do in terms of understanding PRISM. We have associated PRISM with a few important conditions that we see all the time in primary care. So it's more likely to have obesity among people with a PRISM pattern. And that might be because of how abdominal or chest adiposity influences breathing mechanics. So in this patient who has a BMI of 33, it's certainly important to talk about attaining and maintaining a healthy weight because that could help their respiratory status. Um, There's also a pretty clear uh, indication that PRISM is more common in people who are smoking cigarettes. Luckily, this patient has already stopped smoking, so they should be congratulated for this, but it's something to keep a close eye on in all of our patients, particularly those with uh, abnormal lung function, such as a PRISM pattern. PRISM is also more common in people with chronic illnesses, such as diabetes, hypertension, coronary artery disease, and especially when you think about this increased risk of cardiovascular outcomes, 
uh, patients with PRISM should really be monitored very closely so that we're giving the best evidence-based care for these affiliated conditions. And so once again, I think that a PRISM diagnosis should be recognized as something that could have a, an adverse prognosis for a patient. We need to redouble our effort to look for um, modifiable risk factors that have been associated with PRISM. We should look into whether there might be evidence of a restrictive lung disease, um, and we should consider after a period of follow-up, you know, a few years, repeating full PFTs to see if the patient might have transitioned to having COPD or to having a, a restrictive disease. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Olsner. That, that was a really fascinating uh, discussion of something we, we don't often consider, particularly in primary care, uh, PRISM. But again, as you said, you see that FEV1 or FBC in patients suspected of COPD, but it's, that ratio is 0.7 or more, but that FEV1 is, de is decreased. Time to think about PRISM. I just had a question for you. I, I know that there is still a lot more that needs to be researched and understood about, about PRISM, but I have seen pretty variable rates of progression onto COPD, you know, up to 50%, as you said, but I've seen rates of 12% progression. Do you think that has something to do with the fact that you do, you can identify some potential you know, important risk factors such as obesity and smoking that if you identify somebody with PRISM and the folks get on board, seems like that would be a good way to potentially avert and drive those rates of progression on the COPD lower, correct? I hope that's the case. I can't answer definitively, but I think it is um, something we should research further. And I think that we need to um, take these adverse outcomes in patients with PRISM quite seriously and, and think about doing our very best to target our evidence-based prevention towards all the potential drivers uh, as early as possible once we see this warning sign. That is a really good point. No, I, I don't know of any evidence, but it, it seems to me like this is a good point for intervention for patients who have some of those um, negative health habits where by improving them, um, you're probably going to uh, lift all boats and, you know, hopefully their, their lung function response, hopefully their cardiovascular risk response as well. But right, nothing definitive to say about that, but something we do, we certainly do all the time with our patients with those, those negative habits. So it seems to me a call to action because we're not there's no, you know, specific treatment, you know, in terms of a, a, a pharmacotherapy that we would recommend for somebody with PRISM necessarily. Absolutely. Um, all right. Well, I, I appreciate it. Um, always thinking generalist here. That's that's my job. Uh, so uh, let's turn to our last case, um, the, the best for last year. We have a patient who is a male, a 59-year-old male. He's a former smoker and was diagnosed with COPD at the age of 51. This patient has two to three exacerbations per year and was admitted to the hospital twice in the last year. He complains of wheezing and shortness of breath with moderate exercise and frequently has cough with sputum production. Uh, the patient's last spirometry showed an FEV1 of 1.3, which is 50% of uh, the reference range, and an FEV1 to FEC ratio of 65% with fixed obstruction. He is treated with a combination of a lava-lama, uh, and takes a short-acting bronchodilator as well, three to four times daily. And now the patient's family history reveals that his father had both COPD and died at age 60 with liver cirrhosis. So I'll turn back to you, Dr. Stefan. Should this patient be tested for alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency? 
Yeah, so the short answer is yes, he has COPD and should be tested. His family history with his father having COPD and dying of uh, liver cirrhosis could be also a clue towards the diagnosis. So I want to start with a few words about uh, alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, which is one of the most common genetic disease, and it is caused by inheriting certain alleles in the Serpina-1 gene which result in deficient serum levels of AAT or a dysfunctional protein. And the AAT is synthesized in the liver and secreted in the circulation where its primary role is to protect lung tissue against the enzyme neutrophil allostase. And point mutation can lead to retention of AAT in the liver, causing liver disease, while the lack of this proteinase inhibitor predispose individuals with severe deficiency to early onset emphysema. Most importantly, current evidence suggests that there are at least 100,000 people with alpha-1 in the United States, and one to 3% of patients with COPD have alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. And several clinical organizations, including the COPD Foundation, American Thoracic Society, the Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease, recommend on the alpha-1 screening test for all COPD patients, regardless of age, smoking history, ethnicity, or FEV status. In addition, all persons with unexplained liver disease, with poorly responsive asthma, with C. anca vasculitis, paniculitis, or bronchiectasis, and uh, first-degree relatives of people with AT deficiencies should be tested. That being said, the first step in testing is measurement of the AT level in serum. This measurement should be accompanied by a C-reactive protein, since AT is an acute phase reactant that increasing, increases during inflammation or infection. And a serum level higher than or equal to 1.1 gram per liter in the presence of a normal C-reactive protein level can be taken as evidence of a normal AAT status. If the serum level is less than 1.1 gram per liter, or if there is a strong clinical concern, then the clinician should request either phenotyping or genotyping in a specialized laboratory. I want to add that some guidelines suggest simultaneous testing for AAT levels and genotyping. And more recently, a genetic screening test was developed using just a cheek swab DNA collection method. Unfortunately, individuals may wait five to eight years and visit three providers between their first symptom, which is most frequently dyspnea, and a positive diagnosis of AT deficiency. And many others are never diagnosed. The classical description is of early onset obstructive lung disease in persons with moderate cigarette consumption and panacinar emphysema, affecting mainly the lower lobes. However, rigid adherence to these indicators to prompt testing has led to underdiagnosis and late diagnosis of AT deficiency. And identifying AT deficiency can be improved by performing routine screening tests for every COPD patient in your practice, because early diagnosis can help an alpha consider different lifestyle, professions, or other professional and personal decisions that could maintain or improve their health. Just a few words about treatment. 
the specific therapy for the treatment of alpha-1 related lung disease is augmentation therapy by the use of AT from the plasma of healthy human donors. This therapy is weekly IV infusion lifelong. And the ultimate goal is to slow or stop the progression of lung destruction. The therapy cannot restore lost lung function, nor is considered a cure. So what about our patient? He should be tested for AATD, and if positive, he should be referred to a specialized center and possible offer augmentation therapy. The treatment plan should include initial complete lung function testing and chest CT with annual spirometry and the appropriate use of antibiotics, an immunization program, including viral hepatitis and influenza, reduction or elimination and environmental risk factor, especially smoking cessation, appropriate inhale medication and exercise program and oxygen if he will need it. I want to end stating that ATD is not a rare disease, but rather a disease that is diagnosed rarely. And testing for ATD is simple, quick, and highly accurate and could improve the life of some patients with COPD. That's a great discussion and a great conclusion. Uh, really important, very pragmatic. Uh, Dr. Stefan, I'd like to give you the floor for any final notes you'd like to share with our audience. Sure. So primary care providers looking for more information on COPD should visit NHLBI Learn More Breathe Better program webpage. Learn More Breathe Better offer resources, including a COPD healthcare provider's toolkit that contains material to pass through to a patient. These materials highlight COPD basic for patients, materials on inhaler use, COPD on vaccines, smoking cessation, and more health education resources on COPD, asthma, and other lung diseases are all available at www.nhlbi.nih.gov slash breathebetter. Well, Dr. Olsner, Dr. Stefan, thank you for a great discussion. Uh, thank you very much to our audience as well. We know that you are very busy, but hopefully you found uh, this information useful and helpful to your practice. Um, take care and be well.